This is Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. I'm Alan Strickland. Christine Sweet is a broadcaster and one of the earliest women DJs in pop music. Her love for music of all kinds led her to jazz and classical formats as an announcer, producer, and on-air host. In the 1970s, she was the first woman on the air at a top 40 station and has vivid memories of blazing that radio trail. Christine, what was it like to be one of the first women in broadcasting? When I started in radio, there weren't very many women. I'm not saying I was the only one, but uh, we were more rare. I have memories of people telling me, what business did I have getting into radio? I mean, women's voices are terrible on the air. We don't want to hear this. And, you know, why do you think you deserve this job that you're taking away from some man? So you show up as the very first woman at this top 40 station. How were you received? I have to say I am still grateful to this day for that program director for taking a chance on me. When he heard my tape, he decided that I was good enough to train. And I had to be trained from scratch because I'd never done top 40 format before. It's a very regimented playlist because they think their success with listeners is tied to what's popular that minute that day. Exactly. And so you did follow playlists. The good thing about this station was it was a little bit unusual in that it was half current hits and half oldies. And so you got to alternate and the oldies were of your choice as the DJ. So that was the fun part for me. But when I came to the station, I was trained on air like at five in the morning when nobody was supposedly listening. I'm sure there were a few people listening. But uh, I got to do my mistakes and dead air and all that stuff because (laughs) dead air is a cardinal sin. It's the worst sin. In top 40. And then I was ready to start my Saturday night shift from six to midnight, which was, that was my job, is that one shift a week. Now, I'd been told I was replacing a man. He was going to be fired. But I was told this isn't known yet, so just keep it under your hat. So I happened to be in the building when said man, who had gotten wind of the fact that I was replacing him on Saturday nights, decided to have a little opinion and indicated he was pretty sure he knew how I had gotten the job. He said this on the air. Sexual innuendo, and you never even met the man. I never met the man. I wasn't on the air yet. And this was not how I envisioned being introduced. (laughs) Welcome to the wonderful world of broadcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sexism galore. And this was your hometown, right? Well, this was the town where I was born. So, But you had relatives who could have been listening and heard this. Yes. It was hateful and hurtful and maybe reached people that you wish had never heard that. I'll never know. Uh, Probably best that way. (laughs) So next time I talked to the program director, I expressed my displeasure and my outrage, in fact. And he pretty much told me, "Eh, you know, he's gone now. Don't worry about it. Nobody heard it. Not a big deal. Just, you know, let it go and move on. And there was nothing I could really do about it because I wasn't going to quit over that because I wanted the job. 
But for you, getting into radio was a way to keep in touch with music and, and use your education that you had earned in college. It really was never about being a dominant personality on the air. You just wanted to be around music, right? Exactly. I had always loved music since childhood. I felt as though if there were no music in the world, I would not want to live in this world. That's sincerely how I felt. Even as a child? Even as a child. And so when I got to college and I entered as a French major to make my parents happy, I soon realized, no, this is not what I want to study. I want to focus on music and damn the torpedoes. (laughs) (laughs) So I suffered their displeasure and their disapproval and ended up with a music major uh, focusing in music history, minoring in performance. And I thought, hmm, I'm sort of realizing that I don't want to teach music and I'm not really cut out for being a professional musician. That lifestyle and all the competition. I was a flutist and I just didn't see myself pursuing that professionally. So I thought, but I still want to be in music, so how do I do that? And I'm probably one of the few music majors who ended up in a music field because I chose radio as a likely way to be able to work with music. And I had knowledge of jazz and classical, and of course I grew up with the top 40 because You know, I was like a teenager when the Beatles came to America. So I had all the experience of that popular music in an incredibly fertile time for popular music. Oh, late 60s, early 70s was incredible. Yeah. The birth of, I think we call it classic rock now, some of it. Yes, that. And plus the 50s, too. I mean, that was Elvis and all that great stuff. It was a wonder, really, because there was new stuff coming out every week. It was different, and we listened to the radio. That's how we got it. Well, and if you were on the air from 6 to midnight on a Saturday, I mean, that was when people were really consuming radio, probably driving around town with the windows down, and you were playing oldies and current hits. You had a corner on the market, I'm sure. I would think so. That was a little intimidating, but I just thought, well, I got to do this, so I'll just figure out whatever that entails, and I'll do it. Well, when you're working a commercial station, especially when it's playing pop music, there's a lot to do. And you've got to queue up the next record, get news off of the newswire and weather off the weather printer. I mean, in the the day when you and I were doing this sort of thing, there was no automation. There were no digital consoles. There were no computers. It was literally, uh, I remember ripping and reading off of a teletype. Right. I mean, I think people today might not even know what that is, but it's a printer that just was constantly printing and wasting paper. (laughs) Right. Killing trees. Yeah. And I think it's hard to convey, even with all that you just said, how energetic you had to be. Frantic. Absolutely frantic. Right. And I learned more about the skills of broadcasting in that job than in any job I had subsequent to that. There was just so much that you had to be able to do efficiently, fast, multitasking. And you're by yourself, especially on the weekends and nights. There's no one else there. Right. right. No yeah. one else there. I did that. Yeah. It was quite the education. And I, again, I'm always, I've always been grateful for that. I remember sometimes I would deviate from the playlist because I needed a longer song to go to the bathroom. <laughs> 
Yeah, and in my job, we didn't have the longer songs. So it's true. You took the news at the top of the hour, the news feed from the network, because you needed a break. Oh, yeah. If you could get the full five-minute newscast at the top of the hour, that was... Luxury. That was like a vacation, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you were the very first woman on the air at this top 40 station. And was that because of the equal opportunity thing? I mean, how did that actually work? The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was founded in the early 60s, and it was first established to prevent racial discrimination, and then it expanded to prevent gender discrimination. Radio, being part of the media, of course, you know, they wanted to hire women. It was at the point where you want to hire women, but there aren't that many who are ready. So it was an opportune time for the women who were ready. And that's why I started working at three different stations at once. And to be someone who wasn't making it their goal to be a broadcaster, you landed some real goldmine jobs, actually. Yeah, the timing just really worked out. I had some of the prerequisites. I learned what I needed to of the technology, and then the opportunities were there. It doesn't always work that way, but the timing was right for me at that time. So you started with the top 40, and then you went on to WGBH in Boston? Well, I should back up a little bit and explain that Before the Top 40 station, I worked for a few years as a volunteer at the MIT radio station in Cambridge, Mass., which was actually a community station. They had plenty of engineers there, and the general manager had to be an MIT undergrad, but they didn't have enough people to go on the air, so they opened it to the community. It was a great resource for a lot of us who had ambition in radio, but, you know, we had no experience, so you couldn't get hired professionally. So they take care of the transmitter and everything is mathematically perfect, but there's no one who wants to sit and spin the records. Well, at that time, there weren't. (laughs) (laughs) So what a huge opportunity for you to be creative, to use your education, to play what you wanted, because... In most cases, that's what community radio is about. Show up, whether it's R&B or polka or whatever you want to play, show up and do your show. And that's what you did? What did you play? I had a jazz show there for several years. It was once a week. I was a newscaster occasionally when needed also. That's where I learned how to run a board on the MIT built board. Oh, so it was not a commercially available console. They had, this is a homebrew. This was a homebrew, which was built by MIT students. And the reason that's important is that they were determined to make it as hard for everybody (laughs) as possible. You had to pass muster on this board. Nothing was labeled. You had to know what everything was that you needed. And, of course, you know, to combo a radio show like that, you don't really need that much. To be clear for our listeners, we're talking about a a big mixing console, actually, where you have microphones and turntables and tape players and then the faders where you push up and get the network feed of the news. So it's a mixing console. It's not point and click because there's no computers. There's nothing at this time. And we talk about combo operation, meaning you're running your own board and the announcer. So you're doing it all yourself. Right. When I was working part-time at the Top 40 station, I also was subbing as kind of an audition for WGBH in Boston, 
which was a classical station, public radio station. A big station still today. Today, yes. So I was the first full-time female music announcer on WGBH. I wasn't the first ever, but the first full-time. And how did listeners feel about that? Because GBH is the home of the big masculine voice. Well, as so many places were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a mixed bag. There were some people, especially on staff, who were really thrilled to have me there. There were some listeners who were not so happy, but they didn't really come right out and say that it was because I was a woman. They would criticize my pronunciation. They would indicate that they didn't think I knew enough about classical music. It was a mixed reaction. Overall positive, but there was still that element of negativity. I think sometimes listeners have expectations that they have just dreamed up in their heads. You know, you look this way, you are this way. Did you ever have any stalkers or anything like that? I mean, being the first woman Mm -hmm. on a big, powerful station like GBH. Radio is an incredibly intimate medium. A voice in your head is different than a person that you see on the screen. Oh, yeah. In the sense that your mind can put all kinds of characteristics and attributes onto a voice, whereas on the screen, it's right there in front of you. It's already interpreted. The other thing about being a woman on the air is that, you know, there are going to be the guys who have all kinds of fantasies about what you look like and just people in general, not just men, but people in general who project their own needs, their own fantasies, their own, you know, neuroses even onto your voice. And this can cause problems. In Chicago, I had a guy who called me up who sounded reasonable at first. Ultimately, he indicated to me that he would be coming to see me because we were going to get married and it was time for me to meet his mother. Well, at least he wanted to include mom. I mean, there's, you know. You got to give him credit for that. (laughs) And this man actually did show up at the station. No. Yes, he did. He lived in Indiana. So he came to Chicago and showed up in the reception area during the day. And for several hours, they did whatever they could to keep him away from me because I was on the air. He made it known that he was staying in the hotel across the street. So they managed to convince him that it probably wasn't a good idea and all this stuff. And I don't know how they got him to leave. I wasn't told the details. So did you know, did they tell you you're on the air, that this guy who wants to marry you, the whack job is in the lobby, or did they leave you alone? No, they left me alone. They didn't want to frighten me. But the problem was when my shift ended, it was after hours. And I had to go out to my car. There was no one to escort me. This was the backdrop to all of the trailblazing and the pioneer stuff, which is always good and necessary, but it's not all fun. It can be troubling at times. I think that's one of the things that sometimes we don't even consider now is that if a, if a guy showed up at the lobby, I'm here to marry the on-air host. I mean, they call the cops immediately. Right. And that didn't happen then. No. What year was this? Was this late 70s? This was 1980. Mm-hmm. This kind of thing still happens, unfortunately. It's not like it's gone away, but there are different ways of dealing with it now. And a lot more layers between the on-air staff and the public than there used to be. 
This might be sort of a tender place to step, but on-air staff is frequently a group of crazy people as well. (laughs) Alan, anytime you have creative people in the same room, it's going to be a little bit of a circus. It's just part of showbiz. Oh, yes. There are always people like this in the performing arts, and it's what makes it vital and fun and also difficult uh, to be involved in. It's an age-old story. One of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is not only were you sort of blazing the trail as a woman in broadcasting, but you also had to fight a little bit of claustrophobia going into small announce booths. So you had a lot stacked up there. Yes, I viewed it as a challenge. I was dealing with a lot of anxiety at the time. Hmm, wonder why. (laughs) But some of it was not related to work. It was just my personal mode that I'd had for years. And being in a studio by myself and being on the air where I can't leave and I have responsibilities, this was a challenge to me. I challenged my anxiety and my fears by continually doing my job. I don't talk about this very much because I don't know that it happens to that many people. I I wouldn't know because we don't talk about it. It was break by break. I would just talk myself into staying in the room. I'm going to be okay. Nothing bad is going to happen. You're going to be on the air for two minutes and then you can open the door. And I did this enough times that I managed to overcome it for the most part. The anxiety would revisit me over the years sometimes, but I had enough tools by then just by toughing it out to deal with it and not let it stop me. I just did not want anything to stop me from doing what I wanted. I'm stubborn like that. So you would be preparing for your break. So you'd have news, weather, back announce, whatever. You close the door, you do your break between music, and then turn the mic off and then get up and open the door? Yeah. And breathe a sigh of relief and say, I got through another one, on to the next one. Be preparing for the next one. That would make for a very long air shift as if it's not stressful enough. You know, some days it was hard to get myself to go to the station. It was that bad. But I did because I didn't want to let other people down. Did you ever feel any pressure as a woman, as a trailblazer, that I can't mess this up or there's going to be a ripple effect for everyone, the I told you so effect? Yes, and that happened. It wasn't that I could avoid it. There were always going to be people who had more experience and knowledgeable about the music or whatever. You're under pressure to not goof up because it makes all women look bad. And when you do goof up, you have to be gracious about it and then go home and beat yourself over the head because you goofed up. So it can be a vicious circle, but again, I just wasn't going to let it stop me. So there's a lot of determination there. Yeah, you could say that. I think that's really interesting in that you, again, you did not set out to become a a woman broadcaster. You just wanted to be a woman who loved music and wanted to present that to the public. And you wound up at some really, really big radio stations just because you were following your passion for music. Right. And the time was right for women to be hired. You know, music was, when I was in college, it was about the only thing I wanted to study. I could have been an English major, but writing all those papers, no. (laughs) 
I mean, music was the thing that I had passion about and for. That's why I wanted a career in it. I was and I've always been grateful for the opportunities that I've had in radio. It, it wasn't all pretty, but I'm grateful. I think what's amazing is you were able to do all this creative stuff and be on the air when you were using consoles that weren't marked and you had claustrophobia. And it's not like you just put on roller skates and skated through it. There were obstacles. As there are for anyone, but a different set for me as a woman with a lack of expectation that I would do well. And yet, on the other hand, there were people who had a great deal of confidence in me and supported me. I don't want to make it sound like everybody was against me and I just fought the good fight and pushed through. I had help and support from a number of people, too. It sounds like that first program director at the Top 40 station really set you up well. He did, and I felt bad when I left after seven months because he had invested in me. But I really felt that it was the right thing for me to do. And that's the way you have to think of it. Well, back in the day, radio jobs, if you stayed someplace two years, you had stalled. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you had to keep moving. But it is the, the reality of the business yes. is that you go where the jobs are. And if that means, you know, some podunk town and wherever, that's where you go if that's the only place you can get a job. I began by reading crop reports. Well, and futures. I had no idea what a pork belly was. <laughs> Still don't probably. Yeah, I'm vague about it because I don't think I want to know. I don't want to know. I want to enjoy bacon. Right. So as you look back through your lens of radio history, what do you see? What changes have been made in the workplace for a woman? I mean, you walk through the door now, you're going to see women in radio. You turn on the TV, news at night, there's women doing weather, sports, whatever. But in your day, that was a big deal. Well, it seems to be a no-brainer now. We don't even think about it. It's a woman on the air. Big deal. It was a big deal back then, but it isn't now. At the same time, for women going forward, there will always be new challenges. It's not over. We know this. And I just say dream big and don't wait for permission. I like it. Christine Sweet, thank you for taking some time out to come talk to us today. Certainly appreciate your point of view and your good stories. Oh, thank you, Alan. You've been listening to Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. Your comments and questions are welcome. Send them to audiotractor at outlook.com. Thanks to Clark Slicer for his audio direction and his attention to detail that makes our podcast sound so good. I'm Alan Strickland. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.